It's not really a kind of New Year's resolution kind of thing. It's, it's the time that we take each year to revisit our core commitments as a church, to think again about our objectives, what we think God has called us into the world to, to be about and to do. Uh, those are called our five M's. We take each of them from the book of Titus. So if you like, you can turn uh, to Titus now. Um, and that's where we'll spend our time in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. We're in the third of our five sermons, our third M, which we call shepherding to maturity. One of the things we want to be about as a church is maturing in Christ and the things of Christ. Growing up into him. When we first had the idea of planting the church and, and the Lord started giving me these objectives, um, this was titled differently. We used to call this one um, Men, Women, and Families. It's kind of clunky. And so we looked at Titus 2 again and said, what's, what's really hanging over this? Uh, and what's hanging over this is Maturity. For men and women, old and young, for children, for families. And so, in one sense, what we came to discover is that ground zero for maturity is, is right here in the heart of men and women and in the homes that we lead, that we enjoy. The goal for this sermon is to stir in us a genuine, deeper, stronger commitment to the spiritual growth and maturity of each member in the church and of the church as a whole. As we've said in the first two Sundays, when I talk about commitment here, we're not talking about kind of an optional extra. I'm not trying to get you to enroll in something that you don't have to do. I'm trying to deepen the sense, the urgency, the passion that we have to enroll in something that is actually required of us by the Lord. So in commitment here, we're really talking about a kind of obedience that comes from faith in what God has called us to do. And so my prayer, I'm asking the Father by His Spirit to, to end unintentional drifting in our spiritual lives. I'm asking him to encourage the cultivation of intentional, directional, spiritual family relationships that produce in us Christ-like maturity. My prayer is that the Lord, by the word and the spirit, would provoke us to an unflinching dedication to a joyful holiness. Think about that. I want us to hang our hats on four points here. Number one. We want to observe the ministry mandate that fosters maturity. The ministry mandate that fosters maturity. We'll see that in verse 1 and in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 2. Number 2, we want to think about the model members. There are some model members among us, model members that help us deepen our maturity. We'll see that in verses 2 to 6. Number three, we want to consider, consider the, the marrow of maturity. If you think about a bone that's made up of various layers, a kind of skin around it and then a, a sort of middle layer, in the middle of the bone producing red blood cells and giving life to our bodies is marrow. What is the life-giving marrow of maturity? If we were boiling it down to one thing in essence, what is it? And then number four, 
How do we measure it? What is the measure of maturity? At least according to Titus 2. Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. It's God's Word. It's the first thing I want us to consider. The ministry mandate that fosters maturity. Titus chapter 2 verse 1 begins with the phrase, but as for you. So now Paul is directly addressing Titus the pastor. We are in the pastor's job description now. And Paul is making a distinction between Timothy, but as, or, or excuse me, Titus, but as for you, he's making a distinction between Titus and the false teachers that he was talking about in chapter 1 verses 10 to 16. Those folks are destroying homes and leading people into empty lives. Paul is like, that's not you. That's not the path you take. But as for you, what? You teach what accords with sound doctrine. This is the heart of the pastor's job description. When you think about it, it, it makes sense, doesn't it? This was the heart of Jesus' own ministry. He traveled teaching and doing good. It was the heart of the apostles' ministry in Acts chapter 6 when we find the formation of the deacons so that the apostles can dedicate themselves to teaching and prayer. And it makes sense because teaching is the one thing that pastors are able to do that goes to your heart, speaks into your soul. And it's the one thing that pastors are to be able to do that not all Christians are required to do. So it makes sense that Paul lifts up this aspect of the pastor's job description and says, give yourself to it. Dedicate yourself to teaching what accords with sound doctrine. Now, we teach in two ways. There's a, there's a kind of, I don't know if you were in school, if you ever had a day in school that you had called show and tell. Uh, that's what's in this passage. There's show and tell. We get tell in verse 1, teach what accords with sound doctrine, but jump down to verses 7 and 8. There we get show. He's speaking to Titus and he says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching. There it is again, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So pastoral ministry is really a lifelong session in show and tell. 
The pastor's job is to teach the church how to live with both lips and life. And he's to be the example of it. They're to be the example of it. So Christian, never diminish or lower the importance or the centrality of teaching in your expectation of pastors. Never diminish or lower the importance or the centrality of teaching in the, ga- teaching in the gathered worship of the church. Be willing for everything else to fail or to suffer if it has to, except this one thing. The teaching and the preaching and the modeling of the word of God. Everything comes from that. Everything flows from that. But let's be clear about what's to be taught. Notice now, the Bible in verse 1 does not say, teach sound doctrine. There are a couple more words there. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. In other words, Teach the doctrine, yes, but teach the lifestyle that conforms to that doctrine. Teach the behavior that goes with the belief. Teach people how to walk out the things they sing in worship, right? So this is lips and life, right? So sound doctrine means healthy teaching. For doctrine to be healthy or sound, it needs to have a a few qualities about it. It must be true, number one, according to the Bible, was driving in this morning singing a song and song started out pretty well. They were singing about the fact that we are spiritually speaking by faith, the offspring of Abraham. Good enough. Then it worked its way over into we we get Abraham's inheritance. Okay. All right. Good enough. Good enough. And then the the singing stopped and the, and the choir leader started talking and he was like, yeah, this year is going to be the year that you write that book. <laughs> this year is going to be the year that you get that car. <laughs> and he, just, he, started, he started his run. He started his hoop, right? <laughs> now you ought to think when you sing. Because Abraham ain't know nothing about no cars. <laughs> <laughs> no publishing companies in, in Abraham's day. Whatever his inheritance is, it ain't about you and I getting our breakthrough. It's about you and I getting what Jesus has purchased for us on the cross. Eternal life and an eternal kingdom. So that's a lifestyle that's being offered in that song that really does not conform to sound doctrine. And what we want is a lifestyle that goes rightly, fits together with, is in accord with, in agreement with the belief, the doctrine, the teaching that we find in the Bible. So if it is to be balanced or sound, it has to be true according to the the Bible. It has to be balanced according to the Bible. So we want line upon line, precept upon precept. We want the whole counsel of God fit together. And it has to be rightly prioritized. So there are people who believe some true things, but they blow it up all out of proportion to the rest of the Bible. That's not sound. Sound doctrine is like a healthy diet. So they tell me. (laughs) Healthy diet includes the right mix of nutrients, doesn't it? It has according to sort of the right portion sizes. That's where I always slip. And a healthy diet you eat several times a day. The same is true of sound doctrine. We want to be feeding on it several times a day. We want it in the right proportions. 
and want it in the right nutrients. But I want us to understand something that's a danger regarding sound doctrine. Too much Christian teaching stops with doctrine. I'm not minimizing doctrine. Obviously, we want that. It's absolutely essential. But the pastor's job is to teach also the life that accords with that doctrine. We're interested not just in healthy belief, but also healthy behavior. So I'm aiming right now at your head, that there might be enlightenment, but I'm trusting and praying that that would also inflame your heart, that there might be passion, and I'm asking and praying that the Father would then cause that passion to motivate your hands. Head, heart, hands, in that order, so that our our lives match our doctrine. That's our job, to show you that and to teach you that. This means that the job of a good pastor is to be just meddlesome enough to help you live for Jesus better, but not so meddlesome as to be controlling and overbearing. And this also means that you then, you have a job. You should make yourself accessible enough to receive teaching that helps you live according to sound doctrine. There's a partnership between pastors and people. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 24. We work together with you for your joy and your soundness of faith. He says a little bit later in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he he exhorts the Corinthian church, open your heart to me. My heart is open to you. So there's a kind of a partnership between pastor and people where we are laboring together for joy and faith and to live the life that God has called us to live through the teaching that he's given us to teach in his book. And in the pastor's job, again, we we are to show this. Notice in verses 7 and 8, pastors are to model in all respects a life of good works. So everything I preached about last week in terms of mercy and a life of good works, I am responsible to show you in my life. When it comes to teaching and speech, I'm supposed to show you how to speak with integrity and dignity and soundness. That's, That's our job as pastors. This does not mean we are perfect people. By any stretch of the imagination, we're not. That's why 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 15 feels like so much grace to me, where Paul writes there, practice these things, devote yourself to them, so that all may see your progress. Pastors got some maturing to do as well. Some growth to do as well. You all know I've, I've had to confess some things myself about my own speech from time to time. That too is life according to sound doctrine. Because part of the sound doctrine is repent, confess, grow. I hope that's some encouragement to you all. But it's ticklish. Because sometimes pastors talking publicly about our sins can be done in a manipulative way. In a boastful way. But it is nevertheless important that that leaders model good works as well as model repentance, as well as model progress. Because when we are human in front of you guys, you get to be human too. 
You get to breathe in the fresh air of grace. You get to forget any hopes of perfectionism. You get to stop pretending and really be you. And when we're doing that, we're going to be growing toward maturity. So how do you do this? How do you take in the teaching of the pastors? Well, some ways to do that. Join a small group or lead a small group. We are hoping for 10 new small groups this year. We want enough small groups in the life of the church that every person who wishes to be in one can be in one. So pray for the the growth of small groups in number uh, and then plug yourself into one to receive teaching through the week uh, in addition to Sunday morning that you might be shaped by God's word and into the life that it calls us to. Attend Sunday school. Praise God. It was standing room only this morning. You know, some of y'all are like, yeah, okay, I heard you, Pastor. I'm coming, I'm coming. Dig it. I like that. So standing room only this morning. That's a good problem to have. Last Thursday that we had Bible study. Same thing, standing room only. Come feed on God's word through the week that we might grow together by his word. Start a one-on-one discipleship relationship with someone. So if there's someone you'd like to encourage or someone you'd like to receive encouragement from, call them up. Say, hey, let's get, let's get coffee or can we come over for dinner or can we get together sometime and, and pray? I, I got some things I'd love to talk about, get your counsel on. You know, would you read the Bible with me or read a good Christian book with me? So do that one-on-one. Let's encourage each other. Let's teach and show. Read solid Christian books. I don't know how many of you read But everyone who can read should. Reading is a tremendous gift. It's how we fellowship with with the apostles. It's how we fellowship with God. Think about it. God wrote a book. He means for us to read, to imbibe the truth. And by it, we shape ourselves and and we grow together. So maybe set a goal this year of committing yourself to to reading. You realize if you read like, I think it's 15 minutes a day, just 15 minutes a day, that the average person would read something like a thousand books over their lifetime. So if you're one of those persons like, oh man, that book looked thick. (laughs) Just, you feel that way about the church bulletin. You come and be like, man, why so many pages? God loves you. He has a wonderful plan for your life. (laughs) I think it includes reading. Maybe 15 minutes a day. 15 minutes a day. So teaching is the ministry mandate that fosters maturity. Show and tell is what we're up to here. Now I want to encourage you with something. I think this church has the finest group of pastors I've ever had the privilege of serving with. Some of you know I have served with some really fine men, some really strong men of God. But this particular collection of pastors, think about their lives, for example, how they are in their families. Think about, if you notice, maybe you have, they're at like everything. They're at Sunday school at 9 or 9.15 if they're not teaching. <laughs> they're at Sunday morning service at 10. You may not know this, but a couple times a month on Sunday afternoons, we have meetings with different groups of you. They're at those meetings teaching. They're at Thursday night Bible study. They, they are attending pastor's meetings a couple nights a week, or excuse me, a couple uh, nights a month. Those are not short meetings. 
We go from Bible study into our pastor's meetings. And so we're meeting from about 8.30, sometimes to 11.30, 1 o'clock before they get home. And then there are sometimes special meetings that are going on. I'm telling you, you have the most dedicated group of pastors I have ever served with. And not only that, amen. And not only that, they are joyful in their dedication. They love you and delight over you. And when we're together, we laugh, we pray, we fight in prayer, we think hard about various things. It, it is the most joyful group of elders. It is the most life-giving group of elders I've ever had the privilege of serving with. They are men whose lives, I think, and teaching you can receive and mature from. So follow their example. Come on to Sunday school at 9. Come to church at 10. Come to Thursday night Bible study. Um, join a small group. Uh, plug in, dig in, watch their lives. You, you will not be disappointed. You, you, you will not be set back. You will be helped to grow in every good way. Amen? All right. Second point. But it's not just the pastors that you look to. There are some model members in the church by God's design that help us deepen and apply the teaching so that we reach higher heights of maturity. I want you to notice something. God designed the church so that there would be in the church these members who themselves also are part of the shepherding toward maturity. Notice in verses 2 to 4 that the older men are to be models and the older women are to be models. Here's how Paul writes it. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the younger women. Now, I think it is implied that the older men, though it's not stated explicitly, are also involved in teaching the younger men. There is intergenerational transfer of growth and knowledge and maturity because the church is a family. Who's a child's first teacher? Her mom, her dad, his mom, his dad. And so the older saints are kind of parents to us who teach us and help us to grow in the faith. When we began this church, almost five years ago now, the first ministry that the pastors at that time agreed that we would pursue and, and make sure happened was discipleship ministry based on Titus chapter 2. And in particular, we wanted to take seriously and apply verse 1, verses 3 and 4 by meeting with the older women and training the older women, teaching the older women to disciple the younger women. We did not want to repeat what we think we have, thought we had experienced in so many churches where if you were a young man, particularly if you were a young man aspiring to ministry, you could get all the discipleship attention you wanted in most churches. But if you were an older woman, you were the most neglected member of the church. And second to the older women were the younger women. But God has laid out a very clear plan for how that is not to be the case. The pastors should teach the older women what accords with sound doctrine, and the older women are meant to turn out and teach the younger women how to apply this in their lives. 
So we began our Titus 2 ministry. And every month, on the, I think it's the second Sunday of each month from 4 to 6, we meet with the older women of this church. We are reading three books together, discuss a chapter from each book each month. And we, we are mostly as pastors taught and encouraged, blessed by that fellowship. And we try to invest in those older women so that those older women now turn out like a prepared army to care for the younger women of the church. Now, if you're in that Titus 2 group and here this morning, can I, can I invite you to just stand? I'm sorry that I've just called you older women, but uh, if, you, if you would just live into that for a moment. <laughs> Amen. 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 Now, if you're thinking I'm older and I'm not a part where you're invited, you're welcome. If you're 45 or older, yeah, that's, that's a good number. 50 or over, <laughs> holler at one of the pastors. We'll get you the books. We'll get you clued in. We'll get you clicked in. Come join us for that fellowship. You know what's been amazing? That fellowship has led to the quarterly women's fellowships. That was a suggestion from Deb and a couple of other sisters among those older women. Um, So we started having quarterly all-women's fellowships. And that's led to last year our first women's retreat. So the ministry of discipleship among older women to younger women and the discipleship of women in church has been moving along in in answers to many prayers. You know what we want to focus on in 2020? The pastors are convinced now it's time for us to turn our attention to the men. We start building intentional structures. Amen. I'm glad, I'm glad that was a brother clapping. <laughs> See, you, usually it's the sisters. Amen. Amen. What you say it. What you say it. <laughs> but we want to turn intentionally and raise the level of discipleship and care and encouragement among the men in the church. So brothers, be in prayer, be watching out, be looking out as we, we press into that with God's grace this year. Now, that's, that's the older folks in the church. You, you're meant to be models. I hope you know that. You are models, and, and you are tremendous treasures to the church. Tremendous treasures to the church. So if you have come to this church in the last five years and you have come and your experience has been like, oh, I know they said this is a new church, but it feels like there's a church there. That's because what older people do is put ballast in the boat. They put weight in the boat so that the boat ain't tossed by every wave and every trend, right? Um, older folks have a longer view, and they're not taken in by fads, and they've, they've been through a few things, right? So they're not troubled when a little something happens. And so if, if the sense of solidity that you may have experienced here, the sense of, of depth that you've experienced here is the fact that some of us are old. <laughs> and we ain't tripping on what young people tripping on. And that's a treasure to you. That's a blessing to you. And we want the older folk in this church to feel treasure, to feel useful, to know they have a divinely appointed place in our lives. And so I want to say two things to young people real quick, whoever you think they're young, two things real quick. Number one, slow down. Slow down. If you're going to learn from older people, you got to slow down. Because we ain't running everywhere you run it. Right? And sometimes we got so many memory cards in the file, sometimes it takes us a while to sort of reach back there and find the right one. 
We like those trees in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Everything's slow. Young people think if they're not moving fast, they're going to miss something. But actually, in all that fast running around, that's how you miss things. You're moving too fast to gather any information. You're moving too fast to let something really permeate your heart. Slow down. Sit with some older folk. Don't be so busy to do, do, do. Sit down. Be young. Learn from some older folk. It will save you some headaches. It will make your growth more efficient. You will be wiser than your peers. And it will just look like blessing on your life. Now, here's the second thing I want to say to younger folks. Notice verses 4 and 5 provide a kind of curriculum for Christian maturity. Particularly here is addressing young women, but by extension, again, I think the same thing applies to young men in their roles. That's why Paul says, likewise, in verse 6, even though he doesn't list a whole bunch of things for young men, uh, he does mean the same kinds of things to be developed in them. Now, the things in verses 4 and 5 focus on the home and the heart, the home and the heart. Now, why does Paul here focus on the home and the heart? I need you to think with me for a little bit here because some people are going to be affirmed and some people are going to be rocked a little bit. I'm trying to show you what's in the Bible. Paul has this focus not, 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 not because Paul or the Bible sees the home and marriage as the primary or the only role for women. That's not his point here. Some people believe that. And I respect him. I think that's been in my thinking at times. When I'm reading this section, I come to think that that's not quite accurate. Titus 2 is not teaching that the home and marriage are the only or necessarily the primary roles for women. And we know that for three reasons. Number one, the text does not actually say that. That's the most important reason. Number two, write this down and look at it later. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 25 to 40. Paul says he would rather men and women be as he is, meaning single. That he would rather them remain single than to marry. So the Bible does not teach that marriage is the sort of fulfillment of human longing, that it is the, the ultimate in human relationship and human maturity. Remaining single is not a curse. And being married is not the main calling of womanhood. The culture teaches that and so many churches teach that, but that's not actually what the Bible says. Number three. We know that that's not what Paul is saying in Titus chapter 2 because in his own ministry, Paul includes women among what he calls fellow workers. You can see that in Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. You, you, you remember that passage because there are two women that are arguing, Eodia and Syntyche. And he writes to the church and he says, help those women agree. And then he gives the reason why. He says, because they have worked with me side by side in the gospel. 
And then he counts them among his fellow workers. And he says, among whom also are Clement and he names some other people. So he is listing these women as fellow workers in the gospel with himself, along with other men like Clement. He does not say to these women, go home. Or anything like that. No, Paul stresses the home and the heart. Now we're coming to the why. Because in Crete, false teachers were destroying the home and the heart. Look back in chapter 1, verse 11. Titus 1, verse 11. Where Paul there says they must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families. Families were under attack. We see him concerned about the same thing in Ephesus in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. He refers to the false teachers there as he says, they are the kind who worm their way into homes and, con- and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. False teaching is not a victimless crime. And often the ground zero of false teaching is the home and the family. Distorting those relationships, unsettling those relationships. That's what Paul is concerned about. And on top of that, the false teaching was really destroying human dignity and potential. Look at verse 16, that last line there, where he talks about the Cretans being detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. So this emphasis on the home and the heart was a contextualized response meant to address the problems of false teaching in Crete. Not to give us a whole theology of womanhood, manhood, and the home, even though it is applicable to such a theology. You tracking with me? All I'm saying is let's not make more of this than Paul actually says. So, why am I stressing this? On the one hand, a lot of men and some women must stop using this text to limit women to their homes. When we use this text to limit women primarily or solely to the home, we actually limit their maturity in other areas like gospel ministry. The Great Commission comes to women as much as to men. It's not a gendered commission. It comes to the entire church. That's one hand. Now there's another hand. On the other hand, some married women and men need to learn to see their marriage, family, and home as a critical place for maturity and defending the faith. We have to stop treating marriage and our responsibilities in marriage as the things we got to do that keep us from the things we want to do. God designs our families to show off the gospel and to show off the difference that the gospel makes in the lives of people who themselves were once disobedient and detestable and unfit for any good work. The theater for that, the place where you go to see that play, is the family, it's the home. See it played out in intimate relationships. So we must prize our families as God-designed theaters for the good news of Jesus Christ. Which means 
You can't worship your family more than you worship Christ. And you can't sort of seek the well-being of the family more than you seek the display of the gospel. The family's not the end. In, in heaven there will be no marriage. Be no family. Family is in that sense a means for showing off the beauty of Christ and the gospel. So, young people, when he calls us to give attention to these kinds of things, it's not calling us to a pair of shackles to keep us from other ways of serving Christ. But he is making it plain that the gospel should be reflected in our homes as much as our hearts. It should be reflected in how we think about those intimate relationships of husband and wife and parents and children, not just reflected in how we think academic and intellectually in some debate out in the streets. If we don't live according to the gospel at home, we ain't going to do it anywhere. And if we do manage to do it somewhere else but not at home, we're lying to the world about who we are. This is meant to come home. And the people who help us deepen this good doctrine and the life that goes with it in our homes are the older members of our church. The older members who can share with us the teaching of God's word, the example of their own lives, and give us a lot of wisdom from both. Which brings us then to our third point. The marrow of maturity. We've thought about the mandate that fosters maturity. That's teaching, showing and telling. We've thought about the model members who help us deepen the maturity of the church, the older men and women. Now, don't miss this. We are meant to help each other um, mature across generational lines. So spiritual maturity, and this may be a place where you have to think differently. Spiritual maturity is a group project, not an individual project. I took some of y'all back to school again. Y'all hated group projects. Just hated group projects. But group projects had a wonderful function. They created a sense of shared destiny. Right? All of a sudden now, you have been puttering along, getting the grades that you were getting, and maybe you were happy with them, maybe you didn't care, but they were your grades, right? Now all of a sudden, your grade is tied together with somebody else and how they're doing. It created a shared destiny. Everybody was impacted. So here's the thing. Group projects made strong students more caring students for others and made weaker students more responsible students as they partner with others. And it's the same way with maturity in the church. Those who are strong are meant to lend their strength to the weak, and those who are weak are meant to sort of grow in their contribution uh, to the whole. So we are meant to grow up together into Christ. And this is Paul's vision in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, where he writes, you know, we, we share our gifts with one another until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of the stature of Christ. We're all growing up together into Jesus, and we can only do it together. All of us are meant to grow in this way, into maturity. But what's the essence of maturity? If you're boiling it down to one thing, I want to give you a candidate from Titus chapter 2. You see it in verse 2 with older men. You see it in verse 4 with younger women. 
See it in verse 6, the only thing that's listed for young men. And even with the older women, I think it's implied with the language of reverent and not slaves to much wine. In Titus chapter 1, verse 8, is a qualification for leaders. The marrow of maturity is self-control. Self-control. And what is self-control? Well, let me give you a a definition. Self-control is a gospel necessary, faith-motivated, Holy Spirit-empowered virtue that produces mastery of our thoughts, feelings, and actions, and that protects us from destruction and prepares us for service to God. That's my summary of self-control in the Bible. Self-control is a gospel-necessary, faith-motivated, Holy Spirit-empowered virtue that produces mastery of our thoughts, feelings, and actions, and that protects us from destruction and prepares us for service to God. Each part of that definition comes from the Scripture. In Acts 24, 24 and 25, Paul is there witnessing, I think, to Felix, and it says he reasoned with Felix about righteousness and self-control. He was taking Felix's lack of self-control as a gospel issue, as a necessary thing to address in Felix's life that he might actually understand the good news. But, but it's motivated by faith, our self-control. 1 Timothy 2, 15, 1 Corinthians 9, 25. Particularly 1 Corinthians 9, Paul talks about bringing his body under control. Why? There's a reward that he's looking forward to. Faith has him looking out to the better life that's to come. And so his control of himself is motivated by by that faith. The self-control is listed in Galatians 5 as a fruit of the Spirit. So we're not going to produce self-control without the Holy Spirit giving us strength and working in us in those deep corners in our hearts that we can't reach with our little arms. And it protects us from destruction. Proverbs 25, 28 says, a man without self-control is like a city without walls. You think about the ancient world in which that was written, the the line of defense for a city was its walls. If it didn't have any walls, then it would be sacked and rampaged by anybody passing through. That's what it's like if we don't have self-control, any desire, any any temptation, any, any teasing conquers us. And it prepares us for service to God. That's what Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 to 8, where he gives us those list of virtues. Add to faith, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and self-control, brotherly love, and so on and so forth. He says, if you have these qualities, they will not be unfruitful. Your life will not be unfruitful. And instead, we'll have an abundant entrance into the kingdom of heaven. That's self-control. I'm convinced in our culture we don't think about it enough. We don't pray for it enough and apply ourselves to it enough. It's a culture that's just out of control. And I'm convinced in our culture there are some self-control counterfeits. Some people pretending to be in control or thinking that they're in control, but they're not. Here's how you know. 
when righteousness or holiness or obedience to God or wisdom is put before them as something they ought to do and accept, they say things like this, I'm grown. Or I'm an adult. Or I don't like people in my business. Or you can't tell me what to do or how to act. I I do what I want to do. This is my life. Beloved, that's the chorus of people who are out of control. If you really are self-controlled, the last thing you have to do is assert it. If you really are living well with a sense of autonomy governed by Christ, the last thing you have to do is get mad when somebody calls you the truth or righteousness. All of that protesting is just evidence that you don't have that central thing in that conversation on that issue called self-control. A lot of counterfeits in the world, and we don't want to be taken in by them. We, we want to pursue the real McCoy because here are the benefits of self-control, and here are the benefits of that self-control that lead to maturity. At least five that I, I sort of gathered real quickly from the Scripture. Number one, sexual purity. That's the whole argument of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. That's the entire argument of 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3 and following, where Paul says, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification, that you may know how to possess your body, not in passionate lust as the heathens do, but like people who know God. His second benefit, modesty. Modesty. Modesty is not a topic we should talk about because we are trying to control others. It's a topic that we should talk about because it gives evidence to, it sort of portrays what is happening in the hearts of people. And whether or not there's self-control in the hearts of people that expresses itself in chaste, in modest, in appropriately reserved ways, in speech and in clothing and in other ways. So Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.9 that he wants godly women to adorn themselves in modesty. Again, I think in the context, he would ask the same of men. Brothers, we can be immodest too. We ought not deceive ourselves that it's okay with us and not for the sisters. Loosen that shirt. Put on another layer. The sisters don't need to be looking at your biceps. Being distracted in the ways you claim they distract you. What's in our hearts? Is it to care for each other in modesty? Fourth thing, self-control is associated in the Bible with courage. I love that. 2 Timothy 1.7, God's not given us a spirit of, of fear, but of power and a sound mind and of self-control. Right? The reason he's given us self-control is that we might have valor in difficulty and valor in danger so that we might be courageous Christians, not shrinking back in fear, but trusting our God and leaning in. Number five, self-control actually promotes the full assurance of our salvation. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. So the cultivation of this virtue is not a drudging duty. It is for our joy. 
It is for the effectiveness of our witness. It protects us from destruction and prepares us to serve God. Now, a couple of questions to meditate on this week. Number one, how would you rate your self-control? Sit with that for a while. Don't, don't rush to a number, one to ten, I'm a seven. You know, because seven sounds modest, and he said self-control was modest. Sit with that for an accurate, prayerful assessment. And as you do that, think, number two, in what area do you need to grow in self-control? Is it with your tongue? It's hard to bridle, James 2 says. Is it, is it with your thoughts? Uh, is it with certain actions and behaviors, maybe even patterned behaviors? Where specifically in our lives do we see evidence of self-control or the lack thereof? Number three, and, and where is that hurting us? In fact, that's going to be one of the indicators for where we need to grow in self-control. Think about where you've seemed to consistently be hurt. Especially if it's an action that you're taking. And think about whether or not the, at the bottom of that is a lack of this virtue and a need for more self-control. So that's the marrow of maturity, self-control. Let's close real quickly on the measure of maturity. How do we know whether or not we're maturing as Christians and as a church? There are many ways we could measure our progress. We could measure progress by changing habits. Lots of people measure maturity by what they put in their heads, the theological knowledge that they gain. Those, those measures are fine as they go, but they have one major flaw. One major weakness, those measures are usually pretty internal. We are usually limiting the assessment of ourselves to ourselves. There's no data from outside to confirm or to challenge what we're saying about ourselves. There's subjective measures. But beloved, there's a big old watching world out there. And, and God has actually given that world permission in certain ways to judge us. So in John chapter 13, 34, when Jesus says, they will know you by your love for one another, he's given the world permission to judge the authenticity of our discipleship by whether or not we love each other. And in this text, we got a couple of other ways in which God gives the world permission to look at the church and to help us arrive at an accurate assessment of how mature we are in Jesus. You see it in verse 5. Young women are to be taught to care for their homes and hearts so that the word of God may not be reviled. By who? It's not by the church. By those outside the church. Verse 8. Pastors are to be sound in speech, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Verse 10. Slaves are to live with their eyes on Christ, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Each of those verses involve the opinions and assessments of people outside the faith and outside the church. So it raises some questions for us. Do our lives cause outsiders to disrespect or revile or to honor God's word? Keep in mind, what we're talking about here is a life that is in accord with sound doctrine. 
that life is an indicator to the world of our doctrine. So do our lives cause them to disrespect or to revile? Or does it cause them to honor God's word? Another question. Is our speech so wholesome that people who don't even like us are put to shame because they have nothing bad to say about us? So the next time we're tempted to complain, so-and-so always talking bad about us, so-and-so always dogging my name, just pause for a minute and ask yourself, am I giving them material? Am I giving them reason? Because this text says, if our life conforms to our doctrine, they would be ashamed that they thought bad of us because they had no reason. Is that what's happening with us? Or does our speech leave people feeling justified in trashing us because we've given them reason to do so? Number three, how about our work ethic? According to verse 10, do we work as unto the Lord so that Christian teaching appears beautiful? It adorns the doctrine of our God. It appears beautiful to people who are not Christians. Or we slack on the job. Making Christian doctrine look bad and unhelpful. Leaving people to say, this don't make no difference in your life. Why, why I want to get involved with that? How we live the truth affects how people view God, the gospel, and the church. If we are immature and out of control, then we slander God. We slander the gospel and we slander the church. But if we are mature, growing in godliness, growing in self-control, then we show off the glory of God. We show off the glory of the gospel. We show off the glory of the church. So the question becomes for us, what reputation does the word of God have when people look at how we as the people of God live? That's the question that determines how mature we really are particularly as a collective church, that's the measure of maturity. Do people live God's word because we live God's word? Or do people belittle God's word because we betray God's word? This is why our maturity isn't an option. It testifies to the truth and the beauty of the gospel. And what is the gospel? And why do we not want the gospel cluttered up with an immature life. The gospel is the really, really, really good news. That we were sinners. That's not the good news. The good news is that even though we were sinners, God still loves us. And he proved his love for us in this. While we were sinners, he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for us. And in that death, Jesus was punished for our sins so that we wouldn't have to be. And three days later, God raised him from the grave to say to the world, I accepted his sacrifice and that there is life through faith in him. 
and to say to the world that anyone who would believe in Jesus, God's son, and turn away from sin, that they too would have that same resurrection life that Jesus rose from the grave with, that they would live forever in the presence of God, in the presence of his love, in the presence of his glory and joy, and that they would have victory over their sins, not be condemned by them. We want that message to come through really clearly to you if you're hearing you're not yet a Christian. And we want to ask you to maybe do something that might be a little bit difficult, and that is separate our immaturities from that message and hear that message clearly. God loves you. He sent his son to redeem you. He has raised Jesus from the grave so that you might have eternal life. And now he calls you to turn from sin, to put your faith in Jesus as your God, as your Lord, and follow him in faith. The end will be eternal life, everlasting glory. That's what God offers you this morning. If you're here this morning, don't reject that offer. Don't reject that offer. Don't harden your heart. Put your faith in Jesus. Or if you have questions, talk to me, talk to any of the pastors, talk to your Christian friend about it after the sermon. We would love to help you first come to know Jesus and then mature in your knowledge of him. Let's pray together. Father, we do gladly confess that we are not there yet. We've all together got some growing to do. And we praise you, though, that you have left us in your word the teaching that we need to mature in Christ's likeness. And we praise you, O Lord, that you have left us in your church, family members, to help us do so. Pastors and older members, even peers shepherding one another, to the full measure of maturity in Christ. And we will do this if you help us. Grant us grace in our small groups, in our fellowships, in our Sunday gatherings for Sunday school and and Bible study and our main service. Grant us grace to grow in Jesus. Not just with a head knowledge, but with a heart that gets set on fire. And not just with personal passion, but with public witness with hands that go to work making Jesus know. Oh Lord, we love you and we praise you and we ask for your help in this and we pray, oh Lord, that you would be speaking to every heart, calling some for the first time to believe in Jesus and calling others to go on and not turn back, trusting in Jesus. Do this for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.